refer to the work of pastors and missionaries and priests as sacred duties. And then, you know, we look at the work of lawyers, engineers, teachers, construction as secular work. But the Bible, what you find in the Bible is it's dominated by stories about men and women who, who do secular work and God uses them in powerful ways. There's gardeners, there's shepherds, there's military men, political carpenters, there's tent makers, there's homemakers, there's just all of these secular duties and God continues to use these ordinary individuals to do extraordinary things. And Nehemiah at the life of Any, anybody having okay, I'm gonna use this. Welcome. All right, there we go. Is that on? Yeah, okay. So we're... We're starting off great here today, aren't we? <laughs> we're, we're talking about a man named Nehemiah. We're going to look at the life of this man. You find it in an Old Testament book, which is titled Nehemiah after the guy's name. And Nehemiah is one of those ordinary individuals with a secular job. He started out as a government, uh, a government official. He was working, he was employed by a foreign king. He's a Jewish man, but he's working for a foreign king in a foreign country where he had pretty much been born and raised away from his people. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the history in, in a little while. But he was working for a foreign king named Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes is a Persian king, and his father was named Xerxes. And if you saw the movie 300, anybody see 300? It's like this great epic battle, you know, Spartans and all that. Well, Xerxes is one of the, is you know, is the king that, you know, they're fighting against, basically, in that movie. Well, this is his son. Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, is the son of Xerxes. And Nehemiah worked for the king. Okay, he's working for this foreign king. And like I said, he was a Jewish man. Nehemiah, he's a Jewish man. And he was a high-ranking person. It's interesting. He's a Jewish man working for a foreign guy, but he had risen to real leadership alongside the king. He was the cupbearer to the king. It sounds kind of like... You know, if you're a cupbearer, um, anybody know what a cupbearer does? You know, you probably know. It's the guy that, that comes alongside. He's the poison checker, right? The king, before he would drink or eat something, you know, these officials would come and they'd smell and they'd taste the wine or the drink that they're going to be giving them. And they, you know, if, if he doesn't die, then it's good to give to the king. If he dies, then, you know, don't give that to the king. That's the role of the cupbearer. You would think that would just be this really low, low on the totem pole role, but it, but it really wasn't. The cupbearers for the kings were actually pretty high-ranking, trusted officials. They had to be handsome individuals because they were in the presence of the king, and he wanted to look at somebody, you know, handsome, which is kind of unusual. We're not going to talk about that, but... <laughs> but 
over the next five weeks, I'm going to look at the life of Nehemiah and some of the things that God did by using this very, very ordinary man in a very, very specific place. And so we're going to trace his life, look at some of the purposes that God used him for. And as we're, as we're doing this, I want to apply these principles that you find in his life and through the book of Nehemiah. I want to apply that, lay that over a local church and just what are some things we can learn from that. Because um, Nehemiah, what he was, he was an ordinary man and he saw some things that needed to be done. Just like in, in the Seinfeld episode here, you know, the four characters there, they're just watching and they're mocking and they're actually videotaping this carjacking that's happening and they're laughing at the guy and, you know, they weren't prepared to do anything. And Nehemiah was a guy that when he saw something that needed to be done, he rose up to action, he gathered some people, and he did something about it. And so I want to look at his life. Let's start by just reading something together. Um, Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to look at the first chapter. And it should be up on the screen for us. And here's what you find in verses 1 through 3. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Okay, so he's giving you some time frames, okay? Nehemiah was working in the city of Susa, okay? And it says, verse 2, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So we start with this man, Nehemiah. I want to show you a picture of just a sketch of Nehemiah. You see him. He's a cupbearer serving the king. Okay. And he's serving in this city, the city of Susa, which was the winter palace for the Persian king. Okay. And I believe we have a picture of the Persian Empire. And if you look above the Persian Gulf, you'll see the city of Susa. Okay? That's modern-day Iran. It's real close to the border of Iraq and Iran, just to kind of get a sense of, of the area we're talking about. But if you look off to the left, you'll see um, Jerusalem, kind of over there, just to the right of the Mediterranean Sea. So two key areas are the city of Susa and then Jerusalem, which was really the... You know, the focal point of God's people, where God's people had led them centuries before. That's where they had, had, had ended up. But at this point in history, about four, 140 years before these events are taking place, before Nehemiah is in the picture, the people of God were taken over by Babylonians. And the Babylonians um, came in, they defeated them, they burned down their uh, city, basically, their temple, they destroyed their wall because in order to attack a city, you know, that's what you do. You take down walls and you, you burn things down. And so everything that God had done for hundreds of years before as far as building up his, these structures for his people to worship in, you know, it was all destroyed. And the Babylonians, they basically crushed these people, oppressed them, deported and exiled them to different lands. And so they were scattered among these, these, this region. About 25 years later, though, there was a, another war and the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians and the Medes. And what became out of that was the Persian Empire. Okay, So Nehemiah takes place when the Persian Empire was kind of the ruling force in the world Okay, in this time. And Nehemiah, he grew up in 
in the Persian Empire. He grew up out of the city of Jerusalem. That's where he would, his people would have been the Jewish people from Jerusalem and Judah. And, but he'd been kicked out. And so, eventually, the Persians, when they came into power, the Persians were a little gentler to God's people, the Jews. And so they began to allow them to rebuild their community and to go back to Jerusalem. And many, many people, about 50,000 Jews, ventured back to Jerusalem to rebuild their lives in the place that was very significant for them as a people. They built the temple, and here's a sketch of the second temple that was completed in Jerusalem. And this is a restored temple led by a guy named Zerubbabel. You can find out about him in the book of Ezra and some of the historical books in the Old Testament. But Zerubbabel leads the charge to rebuild God's temple right on top of the site that had been burned down, basically. And so if you were to dig up the temples, there had been three temples that were built. Basically, you know, you'd find temple upon ruins, upon temple and ruins, and because they would just kind of clear and then rebuild from there. And then, you know, things were destroyed and they'd rebuild again. And so I don't want to get off on a big tangent, but when they do archaeological digs, it's really, really interesting. And I'm about to go on a tangent here. But uh, <laughs> tell, you've heard of tell, Tel Aviv? Tel Aviv. The word tell, it has to do with just the, these, you know, these craters where they would dig down these tells and they would begin to see history. Um, you know, they hit a certain depth in, in the ground and they'd discover certain things. And they'd go a little further and they'd find all this rubble. And they'd go a little further down in the tell and there'd be like another city in a sense or another temple. And then there's rubble. And then there's another city. And so that's why when you see archaeological digs, it's just these giant like craters because they're uncovering, you know, just centuries of history basically. Well, anyway, I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but I find it interesting. And uh, so... The, the temple was rebuilt. This is the temple that was rebuilt in Nehemiah's day. Okay? And it was a smaller temple than what God had, you know, had built the first time, but it was still a place for God's people to worship. And the walls were allowed to um, go back up, but because of some of the intimidation of some of the foreigners in that area, God's people weren't able to continue rebuilding the wall. And so the news gets back to Nehemiah that the wall... And the, the progress on the wall has stopped. Basically, you know, we're, we're, and the scripture says, you know, God's people are in disgrace. They're in great trouble. The reason why is because a wall really represents protection, safety, the ability to keep people out, you know, all of that. But more than that, it, it, it represented reputation. This said something about God's people. The fact that there was no wall separating them from attack and from the outside. There was no separating line for people to say, you know, those are God's people in there. And, you know, and so Nehemiah was just, he was down because God's name and his reputation was at stake. And he, he just couldn't sit there and be okay with that. So he determined something had to be done. And in verse 4, it says this. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. You know, most of the time when I get bad news, I, I start complaining and kind of whining about it and getting depressed, right? And you might have similar things when you hear bad news or when bad things happen to you. You know, it's Nehemiah, though, on the other hand, you know, when he gets this bad report, the scripture says he sat down and he wept. He was broken over it. And for a number of days, he just... He began to continue to pour out his heart to God, fasting, 
and, and just asking God for direction. What do I do here? He stopped and, and he, he really went to God. Then you have verse 5 through 11. I'm just going to blow through this really quickly. Here's his prayer. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He said, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And really, because of all that, because they had rebelled and not lived the way that God wanted them to live, God allowed these foreign armies to come in to conquer them and to exile them. And so he's saying, Nehemiah is saying, we're guilty. We're out of our land. Our, our temple and everything's broken down because of our rebellion. Verse 8, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're Exiled people are at the furthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. There are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great hand and your mighty, by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. So give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he says, I was cupbearer to the king. What a different response. You know, when trouble comes, what a different and unique response. We see things that need to be addressed all the time, don't we? You know, we see broken down lives, broken down homes. We see financial problems. We're facing financial problems. Um, We see medical problems. and, And we just see devastation all around us. Relationships, you know, divorce, adultery, abuse. There's just all of this stuff and hurt and needs that are all around us. And there's some things I think that we can learn from Nehemiah and what he did. There's really a process of, of steps that he took that I want to walk us through this morning and really present and really ask you to join together to figure out how can we band together to recognize what God is doing in the lives of people around us and, and band together to actually do something about that. So, the first thing Nehemiah does is this. And you can follow along if you'd like. There's a listening guide in the, in the bulletin. The first thing is he identified the damage. He looked at what was broken down around him. You know, there's things that are broken down around us. Again, we need to identify what those things are. You know, here Nehemiah was minding his own business, drinking wine, checking for poison, doing his job, minding his business again. And He gets word from the homeland that things aren't going well. The progress on God's wall, on this wall to protect God's people, was torn down. And the rich heritage of what God had done, all of that was in shambles and open for attack in the future. And nobody was doing anything to rebuild it. And he said, you know, something has got to be done. He could have sent his brothers away. He could have ignored their problem, but he didn't. He took the time to listen and to really identify and think through the damage. And so for us as people, we need to do the same. We need to identify what are the needs around us? What are some of the things that that are going on in the lives of others around us, in our community, in our society, in in even the people's lives that we know already, and identify that? How do do we do that? Just a few things to suggest. 
One is break your routine. It's so easy to just go on with our lives and just live with no interest or, or just to separate ourselves. Like there's a street across, like in the Seinfeld clip, you know, there's a street across. It's just, I don't want to walk across and do I might get hit by a car. I, you know, somebody else will probably take care of it. Look, there's a policeman coming. He's handling the situation, you know. But if we're going to actually identify the damage around us, we need to break our routine. Maybe by driving a different way to work, maybe go on a walk, go on a bike ride in your neighborhood. And ask God, God, would you show me what is broken down around me? Show me the needs that are around me. Whatever you need to do is just basically do something different and ask God, show me these needs. Secondly, get current. Be current on the news. That's an important thing. Sometimes, I, you know, sometimes I don't turn on the news for quite a while and don't read the paper for a while. And then everyone's talking about something and I'm kind of the, the stupid one in the conversation. Just kind of, yeah, yeah. Hope they don't ask me a question because I don't know what they're talking about here. So, you know, be current. For us, that's really important, I think, to, to understand what's going on around us in our community. Talk to people. Find out what's going on. And then listen. Pay attention when people are sharing things with you. Those are ways to identify the damage. And then what you find in Nehemiah is he allowed himself, so we need to allow ourselves to be impacted. This is a very, very important step in seeing and meeting needs is allow ourselves to be impacted. We have to let the needs sink in. What keeps us from seeing what's really out there? You know, we think thoughts like, I'm really too busy. I'm... I'm there's too many needs for me to do anything about them. So I'd rather, I'm just not going to do anything. Or there's only me. You know, I, I do see this need, but there's only me. And what, what am I, by myself, going to do about the needs around me? But Nehemiah it says, he heard these things, he sat down and he wept. For some days, it says some days, it's actually four months. There's four months before he goes and he talks to the king. You're going to learn about that next week, about what he does. But there's four months of just time in prayer and time in fasting, allowing the need to really sink in so that he would do something. So we have to stop. There's a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10. We don't have a slide, and I'm not going to read it for you. But in Luke 10, verses 25 through 37, Jesus is asked a question by a lawyer. And the lawyer asks him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus he tells him a story. Well, Jesus answers him. He says, he, what does the law say? And the guy sums up a, a verse, you know, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy asks Jesus, well, well, who is my neighbor? And I think there's a really important thing in that story about who are the people, who, who are our neighbors? Who are those people that are in need that we're to show love to? And Jesus tells him a story about the Good Samaritan. Um, you know, I think Samaritan was referred to in the Seinfeld episode. You know, they're, they're a helping people, Kramer says. Because in the Bible, the story is, Jesus says there's this guy, he's a Jewish man, he's going on the road near Jerusalem, I think between Jericho and, and, and Jerusalem, and it's a story. He gets, he gets robbed, beaten up, and just kind of left there. So here he is, he's lying on the ground, and... Three people passed by. Scripture says two of them were religious men. 
Okay, one was a Levite, one was a priest. And they, these religious men, they kind of walk by and they, they do nothing about it. They see he's lying there, but they're too busy. they got things on their plate. They don't necessarily want to touch this dirty man who's beaten up. And so somebody else will take care of it. So they go their way. They don't show love. And then the most unassuming character, the Samaritan, comes along, helps the guy, puts him on his donkey, takes him and you know, takes care of him. And we're told this story because Jesus is trying to point us, point out when people are helpless, when they, when no, when they have no hope, and there's no one helping them. We need to pay attention to those things. Those are our neighbors. Those are the people that God wants us to meet needs. We're not to just pass by. So to do that, we have to allow ourselves to be impacted by. Wow, this guy's he's wounded. He's on the ground. Huh. We have to let that sink in. We have to stop. I know for me sometimes when, when people start sharing their stories or when I find out there's a need, sometimes, and you might have the same thought, sometimes I'm resistant because I'm thinking, uh, I don't know what I'm going to say. I, I'm afraid to have this conversation because I don't know how to help them. I don't know what to say in this moment. I don't know what they really need. And sometimes that fear keeps me at a distance. But whatever it is, if you'll allow yourself to be impacted and to just take in the need that, that's the, the, a really important starting point. That moves us towards prayer. And that's what you find is, the, the third thing is, Nehemiah, he asked God to intervene. He said, God, I need, I need help here. I don't know what to do. And he confessed sin. He did these different things. Just briefly, some of the things that you saw in, that, in this prayer is, he praised him for who he is. He praised God, and he said, God, you are still on the throne. You are still in control. The wall, everything, you know, broken down. But God, you're still great and mighty. And then he admits his place before him. You find this in verses 6 and 7. You know, he just, he says, God, we've blown it. And I've blown it too, he said. And that's really important. When you're, when you're connecting with God and you want to do something to meet needs, if there's just all this junk in our lives, that will really keep us from being able to do anything about it. So Nehemiah, he gets things straight with the Lord. He confesses sin. He confesses sin of the people of God. And he just, you know, he said, God, don't, um, would you, we need your help. But we know we need to turn again to you. And maybe you're at that point where you recognize there's things that need to be done, but you've got enough stuff in your life that are just, it's keeping you busy enough. And you're thinking, there's just... I'll let someone else handle that because I've got my own set of issues. Well, I think Nehemiah would want, you know, what we see again is it's important to just get things straight, to get clear with God and to say, God, I've blown it in these areas. And I, I, don't, want, I don't want my life to just go and be, be done with. I want to be used by you in the long run. And so I, I'd encourage you, confess your apathy maybe towards meeting needs. Confess, you know, sometimes that's what I need to do. It's just, God, I, I see these things. I, I'm just kind of apathetic, so I confess that to you. Would you forgive me for that? Would you help me to choose to do something? Um, there's, a, there's a word in the Scripture that talks about repentance, and really that's the idea of when you're going your own way in life, and then God gets your attention, you decide to turn and do life His way. You know, that, that needs to take place. For God to use us, we need to be willing to do life His way. Um, Another thing is, in verse 8 through 10, Nehemiah expresses his confidence in God. He says, God, you know, you're the mighty one. He says, 
basically, you're faithful to keep your promises. You know, Nehemiah may have given up on believing that anybody could do anything about it, but he knew God could do something about it. And the last thing you find is just this step of committing to band together. In verse 11, you find the the prayer, but basically he decided, I am going to do something about this broken down wall. I am going to lead the charge. God, if you want me to be used, I will go and do something. He cared enough to be used, and he he stepped forward and said, God, I volunteer to to be used in this role. I'm a cupbearer. But, you know, he was a civil governor. He, he had real leadership. So God wants to do that in our lives. He wants to move us from passive observers when we see needs around us to determined people who, who bring about change and who lead in change. Notice his prayer. He includes others in this prayer. He says, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. He's saying, you know, Hear my prayer, but also hear the prayers of all the people that want to please you, want to live in a way that's pleasing to you. And I think this is the key to meeting needs as far as the church is concerned. Many of the needs around us are much, much too large for any one person to meet. But this is the purpose of the local church. When needs come up within our congregation, if we band together and say, hey, we can do something about this tangibly, and we've done that. At different points, but when needs come up outside that we collectively see something needs to be done, you know, this happens. Natural disasters hit, and, and oftentimes the people that go and do something about is, is churches. A lot of churches are prepared to deal with disaster relief. Um, you know, we talk about this once in a while, but um, 10% of, of the tithes in the, you know, that come, the, the money that comes in through our offering goes back out to some different efforts that we support. And one of those efforts is disaster relief. So Katrina, some of the hurricanes and major things that, you know, some of the, one of the groups that we partner with focuses on, hey, what do we do when these major catastrophes hit? But the local church is a, is a major force to be reckoned with when we band together. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. It says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. God sees us. As a body, he sees one body, and it, this is his gathering. We call ourselves Orange Crest Community Church, but this is his gathering. The church is a people; it's not a place, it's not a building, it's not a location. It's a people, and we're his people that he's trying to use to bring a, to bring about change, to bring about restored relationships with him and with others. At OCC, we band together around a mission. Um, our mission statement is to know, to love, and glorify God. And to be used by him to help all people to know Jesus Christ and to become fully devoted followers of him. That's why we band together. We want to help all people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. But oftentimes it requires um, a, a major problem, a need for people to recognize and reach out to God. There are these key times in people's lives. We call them disses. D-D-I-S stands for death, divorce, illness, status change. Anytime there's these dis-occurrences in, in our lives or in people's lives, we're much, much more willing to reach out to God and say, God, if you have an answer, I'm all ears. I want to hear from you right now. And so part of our role as a local church is to, we, we work, you know, we have that mission, but we carry out our mission in relationships. We try to connect with our friends, 
We try to reach out to family members. We try to involve ourselves in things in the community and have a, you know, relationships that we're building so that we can be there when needs, you know, when needs come up. We really, you know, ought to pay attention to those needs because people that come to Christ or people that decide to turn their lives towards God, most of the time it's, it's something has fallen apart in their life. A wall has broken down. There's a slide I wanted to introduce you to. We might come back and forth to this through this series. But, you know, this is your world. And you have to ask yourself, who, who is really in my world? And I'd encourage you to draw this out or maybe think through this, maybe on the back. Who is in my world? You know, I have myself and my family, my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers, my acquaintances. And I have all those strangers, the person X's that I don't know yet, but they're around me. They're in my, they're in my community. This, I think, gives us a picture of how we can meet practical needs around us. As we're walking through the next um, four weeks of this message series, what I hope is that we would strategically think through where has God placed us? You know, what are the needs? And there might be some needs coming up because of the holidays. And there's things that we're exploring as a church. We've begun to brainstorm what are some things we can do as a church to meet real, real needs in the community. Um, But beyond identifying the need, then figuring out how do we band together? How do, how do we work together to accomplish more than we could do, do if I was just trying to do, you know, do a good deed for the day? But how, as a church, can we work together to bring about um, some, some change and some help? There's some boundaries, just two things I wanted to highlight. There's two boundaries, or there's some boundaries in the Scripture. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10 shares this boundary. Because, you know, sometimes when you start talking about needs and, you know, people who are needy, we start getting pictures in our mind of a person begging on the street corner and we think, you know, how do I know that this is a legitimate need to meet? Um, So the scripture addresses that. You find that in chapter 3, verse 6 through 10. It says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. You know, that's pretty clear boundaries on who you help and who you don't help. There are times when a need is there and I see some puzzled looks. What does that mean? There are some needs that you should not help because inside a person is just deciding to live a lazy lifestyle. They're not willing to work. They don't want to work. They want others to serve them. They want others to give things to them without working. The scripture says that's not the time to help. And, and sometimes you feel heartless about not giving towards needs. Um, God needs to give us wisdom on how to identify when are the times when I shouldn't give and when are the times I should give. But there's some specific boundaries that the Scripture outlines. Here's an overall principle to learn and to even memorize. First Thessalonians 5.14 says this. Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Okay, those are the lazy people who are not willing to work they're just idle we're to warn them scripture says encourage the timid 
There are times when people need to be infused with courage and saying, hey, you can do this. I believe you can make it through this with God's help. I, I, I want to come alongside you and root you on as you're doing this. Then he says, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. So there's some overall guidelines. People do need help. We need to pay attention to those to those situations when people are weak and they need help. Just like in the story of the Good Samaritan, here's the guy. He was weak. He was helpless. No, he had no way to help himself. And so Jesus is saying, this, this, this is a situation where we need to show love and compassion. Um, but there are times when we need to give a warning and say, hey, get to work. You need to carry your load in life. The scripture is very clear. So as I'm talking about these different things through the next four weeks, I'm not suggesting that you go around and you meet every need that is out there. But I'm encouraging you to allow the needs to sink in, to begin to ask God, God, is this something you want me to do, you know, to respond to? What we'll find out is that Nehemiah, he decided, you know, it's time to rise up as a people and to, to move forward with God's help. We need wisdom. So I want to ask you for one thing. Would you commit to, okay, two things. Would you commit to have your eyes open to the needs around you in those concentric circles? Would you, would you ask God, show me the needs around me, and then would you pray for God's help and wisdom to know what to do? So the two things. Open your eyes to the needs around you and pray, God, what do you want me to do to help? Again, apply those boundaries as far as what God says not to help with, but... Ask him for wisdom on this. In just a moment, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray. And afterwards, I want to show you the first part of this countdown video that we had running before service began. Uh, if you saw it this morning, you might have recognized it from the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. It's about a company of soldiers who, who fought in the Second World War. And we use this footage not to compare ourselves you know, with the military, but rather to inspire us to band together to unite together in Christ's name, um, to make a real difference in the lives of people around us, to, to really decide to do something at key times to advance God's kingdom and his purposes in the world. So as you watch this video that is going to be rolling in just a second, take some time to just reflect upon the needs in people's lives around you and ask God to begin to show you what, what you are to do. So let, let's go to him in prayer. God, would you would you help us? to recognize um, what is broken down around us. Thank you so much for your word and how out of your word, Lord, we just learn so much truth. And it just, it centers us, God, when we don't know how to live. And when we're doing our own thing, it centers us and it gives us a a plan for for real living. God, thank you for the uh, story of Nehemiah and things you're planning to teach us through it over the next few weeks. But more than that, Would you help us to do something, God? Would you help us to apply the truths that we learn from your word to real life? God, would you help us to recognize um, people and issues that need to be addressed and confronted and and then give us, Lord, a a clear and, and a plan that requires faith, but, Lord, that, you know, would you give us the courage to do something together, to band together, Lord, to advance your kingdom and to to love and serve others around us. We pray for the power to do that and the strength. In Jesus' name, amen.
I think if they could get the video up, they will after we sing or not. Um, you know, I'm really, really excited about this series. When Josh said they were going to do something that just spoke about Nehemiah um, coming together as a, as a church, as a body, and just tackling needs that we see around us. Um, I'm just really excited because we can do some serious damage as a body. Um, with Christ behind us, we can really impact lives. And so I just, um, as we sing this next